Hi, I'm your host, Thomas, data scientist, data engineer, and you're listening Let's Talk AI. On this podcast, we receive experts to talk about their experience, visions, challenges, with no fear to go into technical details. If you're looking to learn more about AI and related subjects, you're at the right place to make yourself comfortable and enjoy. If you like this episode, please give us a review on your favorite streaming platform, such as Spotify or Apple Podcast. You can also find more content on my LinkedIn newsletter. Welcome everyone to this new episode of Let's Talk AI. I'm super happy to be here today with Maria Vechtomova. Maria, how are you doing? Good. I'm doing really good. I'm happy to be in your podcast. And I'm very happy to uh, have you on the podcast. I have many questions. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about MLOps. Uh, so if you're not into MLOps, maybe this is not the right podcast for you. But if you're interested in machine learning, data science, data engineer, the overall data pipeline, I believe that you can get a lot of insight from this conversation. That being said, Maria, for the people who might not know you, uh, could you maybe introduce yourself in a few words? Uh, yes, of course. Uh, so I'm Maria. I'm already in data and AI for almost 10 years. And the last seven years, I focus on MLOps, and that's what I like doing the most. And uh, I worked in different roles from data analytics to data science to machine learning engineering and building frameworks that actually make life of data scientists easier is really my passion. Amazing. Uh, so I have tons of things working to talk about frameworks. Uh, you have a very interesting career, uh, unique experiences. Um, but to, to just start, I always like to ask, uh, what are you trying to achieve today? Um, whether it's in your current role or on a more broader level you decide uh yeah well i have a lot of plans so currently i work uh, as a, um, a lead ml engineer and manager ml engineering at Ahodohese. it's one of the largest uh, retail companies in the world and i have a complex role i would say i combine a product manager role with tech lead and also a developer role still do still things hands-on and that's something that I want to keep doing I think forever because I like it too much um, but I also like a political side of things I see it as a game so I like both pieces of it uh, which I think is quite unique combination of these skills that you don't see that often I would say um, I don't know where I want my career to go yet um, because as I said, I really like the leadership piece, but I also like the development piece and I want to keep them both. And what role will allow me to do that? Um, yeah, that's a good question. And next to it, of course, we are busy with Marvelous MLOps. That's, um, uh, that's an initiative that uh, I started together with Pashak and Rafael. And we, we are doing really good, I think. We started uh, that in April 2023, and we are growing our following um, really crazy, I think, which which is um, amazing. And we get a lot of good feedback from the audience. We share MLOps content um, three times per week or more often on our uh, LinkedIn channel. And we, well, I post every day on LinkedIn. And 
on Substack, we have an article that comes out every week. So it's a lot of things going on. And we now also started doing uh, Ask Me Anything Marvelous and Elops. Um, it was our first edition this week, but we will be continuing doing that. I think it's super fun and it helps people. Awesome. Can't wait to ask you further questions on MLOps. Um, a very interesting agenda. And uh, we could also discuss the leadership technical role uh, balance thing. That can be a, an interesting topic. But um, uh, all right. So speaking of career, uh, you've kind of introduced, but maybe um, if we could... Uh, go back into like the key steps of your career and you maybe can share yeah. some insights of each experiences uh, just to set your background in MLOps and how you got this interest in the field and where yeah. it all started. Yeah, definitely. So uh, I started as a data analyst because data science jobs didn't really exist back then. Mm. So um, I actually was doing data science job most of the time. I was building some churn models and acquisition models for business market for the telecom company in R back then. So <laughs> R was the language <laughs> of 10 years ago. Uh, but then I moved to another department um, at the same company. And it was you know, like a data science department. And we were doing cool things. Back then, uh, we were building our first APIs for fraud detection on the websites. When people want to buy a mobile subscription, they can get a phone with it as well. And well, they just can get a phone and not pay for it. So uh, we wanted to prevent that from happening. And there was no one who could put that model in production. So we kind of turned into machine learning engineers ourselves. And also at the same time, we were developing a tool that allowed data scientists, data analysts to uh, bring whatever they're building in production fast. And we introduced concept of CICD pipelines of version control, of uh, orchestration, monitoring to data analysts and data scientists. It was seven years ago. I think it was pretty cool because no one was really doing it back then. But we were, and we built a system. I would say it's a MLOps framework. It was a lot of features of it were the same as MLflow currently is uh, functionality-wise. Um, so it's actually good to see that someone made it a big product that's successful. And uh, so many ideas are really shared uh, in that sense. Um, so we built this kind of framework um, back then uh, on a tool called Aster, which was a shared data product. Uh, it was a bad product, but we had servers and we had to use them. So we kind of misused them as a compute. We were triggering uh, some jobs there. And then we moved to Kubernetes native deployments. Uh, Kubernetes LXTAC for monitoring, Michael Jenkins um, for CICD pipelines, also Airflow, Ada for orchestration. Then KPN moved to AWS and we built everything on AWS native tools with SageMaker, Step Function, all of that. And uh, well, after that, I moved to another company and at Alcold.Hazel, we have Databricks here on Azure. And well, pretty much everything is around Databricks and we use GitHub Actions for. Um, well, for uh, CICD pipelines. And I think after building this thing all over again so many times, I really see it's not about the tooling. <laughs> you can build it with anything. And it's really about how to tie these pieces together and how to convince people that it is what 
what is needed. Um, and I think that's the most challenging part. And that's why I, I really believe MLOps is more about organizational changes rather than tooling problems. Yeah. Mm, amazing. Uh, I will just directly dive into what, what you just shared, but uh, the cultural aspects of MLOps, yeah. uh, because generally we won't see a return on investments right away. It mm. takes time to set up but then it is exponential. Uh, and you you mentioned uh, that it requires uh, convince people. Could you maybe elaborate on this aspect of uh, like if you had to sail? Because I, I believe this is a very important thing, but like we need to sail yeah. MLOps, like the value. So what would be your pitch to, to basically selling yeah. it to anyone I'm in any organization? I'm kind of a salesperson in that sense, I guess. Uh, well, it depends where you are at the moment. Um, so it can be that you already have something going on with data science and it is painful. And then uh, there are people interested in you building something for them to reduce the pain. And that's what happened also with Ahul Duhazer. We had um, DevOps engineers that had permissions to deploy things in production. We had data scientists with zero permissions. And they were uh, sending emails with zip files and um, all of that to DevOps engineers. And then they were running it in different environments. Uh, errors appear. They would send it back uh, via email again. Uh, I've never seen such things before <laughs> that someone was working that way. But uh, it's not unique, actually. Uh, it is uh, coming from, from historical um, difference between those departments. IT is a separate thing and business is a separate thing and analytics and data science historically belong to the business. So, and that's where the difference is coming from. Um, so I can imagine many companies struggle with it. But yeah, indeed, how do you, um, you know, say what, how much is it worth to get rid of this problem? Um, it's kind of a technical debt situation, really. Technical debt is something everyone has, and it costs everyone a lot of money, but no one knows how much exactly. So what you could do, um, you could take a project that everyone cares about anyways, and you just build it in the way that is reusable and that other projects may benefit from at the later stage. No one would care really if it takes one or two months longer. Uh, to build it if it's really important thing uh, to build. You just build it that way. Don't really tell you're building the MLOps way. I mean, don't talk about it. Just build it. <laughs> and then uh, when you build it, uh, you can say, look, the next project, by the way, we developed in one month instead of nine months. So the difference of eight months times the value of the project per month is something that we uh, say it's the value of the MLOps framework that we built. The same goes for every next project. And that's what you need to communicate. We need to talk about everywhere as much as possible. And it's really about evangelizing the whole idea, really. So you want to, everyone to know about it, ideally. And also at the same time, if you happen to have to save some costs, um, and often you save some costs because no one has looked at all deployments probably, and whether it's really running optimally, it can be done cheaper, most likely. And then you also say, well, by the way, I also saved money here. So, uh, and then ideally, if you want to grow your team as well, because it's if it's like a shadow initiative, 
you probably only have few people to work on it. But it, if you want to really build a platform, you need people. And that's, I think, the, the hardest piece here. How do you get people? Well, then every time, every other time someone comes to you and asks for features, you say, look, sorry, we don't have people and we can't build it for you. But if you get us budget, then maybe. So, yeah, it's constant, constant political struggle to fund mm. those things. I see. I see. But I guess once you've iterated a few times and you have um, more people, more budget and people trust yeah. you and you keep reducing cost and optimizing and so on, then I believe that uh, <laughs> this is a very utopic uh, scenario in a, in a company, but um, yeah. it can be very interesting. Um, so that's very interesting, like putting specific metrics in terms of time saved, cost say cost reduced, uh, mm -hmm. or maybe a profit a profitability. Um, for one to start building MLOps um, in, in the company, or maybe if there are uh, companies that are very more advanced and we need to push it further, um, mm -hmm. we speak about uh, MLOps maturity. And so I wanted to ask you about how do you measure the state of the, the MLOP maturity of a company? And how would you go about measuring it so that you kind of know if you have to start from scratch and how do you position it yourself depending on the maturity of the company and like how would you prioritize things? This is a broad question, but mainly the, the principal question is um, how do you assess the maturity of the MLOps in the first place? Yeah, so that's actually something that we did at Ahodo Phase as well when we started. Um, Ahodo Phase has 19 brands. Uh, all over the world and everyone has different level of maturity. I, I mean, we could see it from the way how things were deployed and what kind of tools they were using, but you need to quantify that indeed uh, to also justify that some changes are needed. And we created a, a MLOps a maturity assessment that we went through all the brands and we filled in per project the questionnaire. And we could see what kind of pieces in the maturity assessment, like monitoring aspects of traceability, reproducibility aspect, code quality. So what is lacking structurally and what we need to change. And we saw that some brands were actually doing quite well and some not so well. And the ones that were not doing so well, those other brands we could help the most. And that's where we got started. Of course, Google and Microsoft have their own MLOps maturity assessment or, I guess, um, MLOps maturity definitions, but those are really on very high level. So it doesn't give you actionable insights of what you need to change to make it better. And that's, uh, that's why we thought about it in a different way to make it actionable and to, to see where we should put our effort. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, and so if I'm not mistaken, so if, if you arrive, uh, you mentioned that you, you assess different companies uh, and for example, some of them were uh, had um, uh, not a great uh, maturity in terms of uh, their MLOps, uh, uh, their MLOps systems. But uh, 
pro, like doing these assessments. Uh, so you mentioned uh, you mentioned a few, but could you maybe elaborate on like how do you assess like m maybe high level, but um, how like how your way of assessing differed from what we can hear from Microsoft or AWS uh, mm -hmm. in terms of definition? Like how do you go about um, uh, like what what are you really looking for? Uh, based on, yeah. on your on your framework so in our mlops maturity assessment we have some core pieces like documentation for example we go and check uh, do you have documentation of why that exact model was chosen and not some other model uh just justification of the choice do you have a definition of your um software architecture so how how does uh, the whole deployment framework look like do you have uh, documentation of your um of your metrics that you want to monitor so what 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 does business care about what, what is it, what are your kpis have you documented that when we look at um at the code quality we check do you have pre-commit hooks in place for example do you have cicd pipelines so if you have CI pipelines, do you have unit tests there? What is unit test coverage? Do you have pull request systems that people have to review the code before it can be merged somewhere? Um, and also, when you merge, um, do you ensure that there are at least so many reviewers and um, that all the tests have passed? So those things. These are just examples, but there are 60 questions like that. If you go step by step and evaluate and also about monitoring and mm -hmm. all of those things. Hmm. So you mentioned that some companies are doing very good. Uh, so I'm not mm -hmm. going to spend too much time asking. I mean, it could be interesting, but I wanted to ask um, uh, from your experience, what are like the main gaps between what a company should have and what the company that tends to have um, not a great uh, MLOps maturity, like where are they mainly failing? So you mentioned like lacking of documentation, CICD, mm -hmm. um, like having this, uh, this review, passing mm -hmm. the tests, uh, but like other, like do you have more in mind that um, you could share where most of the people are failing on, on those aspects? Yeah, monitoring, I think. Monitoring is um, one of the hardest pieces in, in ML. But it is crucial. So typically, well, there are multiple retraining strategies that you can think about. Um, you could just retrain every week, every month, or well, whatever you have decided. But is it really optimal? Uh, optimal for your business? And then you could think about more triggering deployment and triggering retraining only when it's needed. So mm. there are some some metrics that you can. You can check on your uh, model drift. I think many ML has actually a nice uh, open source package that allows you to to do uh, this kind of assessment of your error uh, on your predictions, even without knowing ground truth. And it is a very powerful tool that actually allows you to to see <laughs> that something is off. You don't know yet exactly what you could look at uh, some data drift uh, metrics maybe to to see w where that is coming from 
Mm-hmm. But at least it gives you some idea when you need to retrain. Mm-hmm. Because retraining might be expensive. It can be very cheap for some models, and you probably don't care that much. But for some, it is very expensive. And then, then you need to have this kind of prothesis in place. Mm-hmm. But also in general monitoring. Um, uh, of course, there are software um, application type of monitoring that you need for our systems. So, for mm-hmm. example, if you have deployed an API, you want to monitor the health of your API, how many requests have been sent to, to the API, what is the latency, and also uh, what errors is it returning and how often. So those things, the very typical things for the standard API deployment. But also you want to know the feedback loop. So for example, you have a cross-sell model deployed on the website for food retailer, like it would be that you are on the checkout page and you have some products in the basket and you get some recommendations based on the products in the basket. And you actually would like to know um, ideally real time what customer added to the basket uh, from the recommendations if anything and you would like to use that uh, for for instant feedback loop to see what is um, uh, what are the metrics on this data mm-hmm. uh, well you would like to do it real time but sometimes it's not possible you only have the data a day later or sometimes even uh, you have to wait even longer. But even in those scenarios, you want to have some kind of evaluation running to see um, how, how your model is doing. Mm-hmm. So typically what I see that offline evaluation metrics is done by everyone. So before you deploy your model, you actually check how model is performing based on historical data. That's mm-hmm. what everyone does. Um, but doing it and actually new data, that's something that is lacking in many, many companies. But it is also very important. Mm. Yeah. I see. I see. So one word, observability, and then uh, you gave more insights on, on different uh, applications. And this example, uh, I believe, uh, showcases very well uh, what you're sharing. And like having this continuous, is my model... Right, I know that at this point in time, my model performed like that based on historical data, but now what's going on live? Like, is this really useful? Or maybe my historical data was at a specific time where my clients were different and maybe Mm -hmm. now it's a a different pattern. So I might need to retrain the model uh, and I can only know that if I... uh, uh, or either get new historical data and retrain mm-hmm. it. But like you said, the best, the ideal thing is getting this data live and being able to uh, watch uh, the model. So I kind of paraphrase just to uh, uh, remember yeah. for me later a- a- and learn. So now let's say that we've uh, assessed the company. Uh, mm-hmm. We know that they are not super, they're not the best at MLOps. Um, how do you go about explaining to someone all right these are going to be the first action that you're going to take based on uh, your specific problems so i i assume mm-hmm. that this is a broad question um, i mean uh, i understand that this is a broad question but do you have kind of a framework or a way to go to kind of um assess the next steps of 
we know how it looks like. Here is what you need to improve, how you're going to improve it. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it really depends on where you can help uh, in the easiest way. So for example, you, you might not have a um, central monitoring framework or something like that. So you could only, I guess, do monitoring ad hoc for some of the use cases. It's it's better than having nothing, but it's still not really optimal. But what you need to do, I think, is look for structural solutions that you can have. So in my opinion, um, the most underestimated thing that you can do is having a standardized CICD pipelines for model deployments. And well, everyone is doing pretty much the same thing. There is nothing special in ML deployment. There are maybe two or three different types of deployments that you have within the organization, and they are easily, they are very easy to standardize. So it doesn't make any sense to reinvent the wheel, and everyone can just use them. And you want to make it very easy to use because just having CICD pipeline is not enough. So what actually makes a difference is that uh, whenever someone creates a repository, that the repository gets permissions to deploy. And it can be done in different ways, um, like, well, it would be different on different systems and diff depending on what kind of cloud infrastructure you have, but it is possible. It is possible to automate that, that at the moment that a repository gets created, you give it permissions to access certain systems. and uh, if you have that as a, as a workflow that um, data scientists can trigger if they belong to certain teams, for example, mm -hmm. uh, if they are allowed to do according, according to your policies, mm -hmm. then you can actually make it happen. That actually the, from nothing to deployment, you can go off main with Pi even, it doesn't matter what, like anything on, mm -hmm. uh, on whatever system you like, you want it to make possible within a couple of minutes. Because usually this process takes weeks. It can be very annoying because you you need to have some service user or uh, well depending on, on system again that you are in also EAM permissions or some federated credentials or mm -hmm. it really a lot of um, those things are typically in hands of someone else of some mm -hmm. other teams. Um, and it's a, it's about finding a way to work with those teams to make this process simple. And it's not always easy. It's uh, about people again, not about technology mostly. But if you achieve that, you will be very far with it. Hmm. Right. So it's like you said at the beginning, it really needs to be a cultural pivot. And like yeah. everyone needs to get on board because if not, some people are going to be left behind and that create conflicts. Um, what are the main challenges? So we've discussed a little bit before, like how can you sell MLOps um, to other mm -hmm. teams and to executives? But what are like the main challenges that you face uh, or that you have faced or that you have seen people uh, face through time uh, trying to, to enhance MLOps and to develop MLOps? Like what are the, the main um, challenges in terms of negotiations or implementing it in the company or convincing another department that this is the right way to do it and this is why. Do you have some examples for us? Yeah, it is It is a, a very hard thing. and I don't think there is a unique recipe for it. Hmm. Um, 
Yeah, there is no unique recipe, but usually if something some things are not going smooth, people are not happy, right? Someone is not happy about it. Probably the team that gets bothered all the time because data scientists need to deploy something or data scientists that they have to ask someone to do that, not happy. So there is unhappiness in the air and you want to utilize it um, and, and um, say, well, I can solve the problem. Uh, but I need permissions, obviously, to do that, some some kind of permissions. And, well, whether you get them or not, I guess it depends on how big the pain is and how ready um, the management is of those teams. Um, because you don't know what, ki- because you, what kind of person you come across, right? Um, yeah, someone, people don't like to give power away. Some people don't. And yeah, if you have this kind of personality, then you will have a hard time probably. Hmm. I see. Embracing change. Uh, it is not easy for anyone. Um, no. And so it might be, a, um, I, I can, I can understand. Uh, I would like to ask you a little bit more about Marvelous MLOps. Um, I would like to go a little bit uh, deeper. So you mentioned a little bit at the beginning but um, like what values it, does it brings? Uh, what are you doing? Um, and, and, and maybe I'll ask you afterward, like your um, public speaking experience uh, on MLOps yeah. and the, the work that you've been doing, sharing content and so on. But can you share a bit more about Marvelous MLOps and yes, what it of brings? Course. And... Uh, so um, I started this um, as an initiative with my colleague Bashak. Um, and well, we are both fan of Marvel and the Melops, and we asked ChatGPT to come up with a name. So uh, that's how our name got originated. I think it's a very cool name. And we also have Marvel themes, themed log, logo, I think also pretty cool. Mm. Um, so the reason why we wanted to start with that is because we already um, collected so much knowledge uh, that we wanted to share with people. And we were doing already via going to conferences, but of course it's a limited reach that you get with it. And we we wanted to start a blog from uh, Ahodul Hazer, but um, there are if you do that officially from a company, that someone needs to actually look at what you publish and make sure that no secret information, anything is in there. Um, so they don't have people to check it with the frequency you want to publish. So they just allowed us to publish uh, from our own names. And that's, I guess, how it got started, really. And we started this by publishing uh, once per week on our Medium uh, channel. And we also were um, writing about it on our LinkedIn, that we wrote another article. But of course, you don't get that much impressions from, from doing that. So um, I'm kind of... We, we we brought to, we came to up to um, a more strategic approach to our content creation. Started um, so I started posting every day and the marvelous MLOps. We um, also started posting three times a week and also Raphael joined us um, and uh, really helped us to create another view on uh, on this content creation adventure that we have. And mm. I think yeah, we are we are doing really good with it and i think the information that we share is very valuable because it's very hard to find 
um, the experience from people that actually doing it hands on every day. Mm-hmm. And with so we have experienced a lot of different tools as well. So basically, we have infinite source of knowledge because every tool, new tools appear every day. Um, so I think it's just you can write about so many things uh, about the mellops, things around the mellops, uh, careers, um, about mellops resources. People love this kind of content uh, because a lot of people want to get into this, and I think mellops is just getting started. It will become bigger and bigger, especially with this uh, Gen AI hype. Yeah, um, mellops will be changed because of that. And new tools will be needed to accommodate for LLM's needs. But in general, MLOps is there to stay uh, in order to, to be bigger. And there are two types of um, profiles that want to get into MLOps from what I've seen. It's either mm-hmm. software engineers that want to learn about ML uh, or data scientists um, that want to let's see that they are quite limited if they don't uh, don't put things in production themselves and um, basically the same story that uh, i uh, i had i guess and yeah i think it's very interesting nice field to, to be in. very exciting and it it's a very cool to connect to so many amazing people on linkedin i have conversations daily with people in, in dms and uh, in comments it's super cool. It really feels like we are creating a community. Hmm. Can, can you elaborate maybe a little bit on that? Like, how did you start with uh, public speaking? Because I believe that you also do some, some public speaking. And also, like, yeah. uh, how did you start this journey of creating online and connecting with others based on, on, on what you're building or what you're learning and, and your experience? Like, how did mm-hmm. it all start? And why should people consider publishing their work, sharing their thoughts, trying to document um, and, and share it to be their journey. Why can it be beneficial for, for one's career? Yeah. So I think that, um, so for me, why, why in general I like to share with people, uh, I guess it comes from my family. My um, parents are both PhD in math and they, um, they teach students in university. And well, basically, my whole family is teachers. So <laughs> I guess it's just in me uh, to also do that and um, to, to educate people. Hmm. And um, well, I, ju- I just like doing that. Um, and I think public speaking comes from it. I, was, I always liked doing that. And uh, now I do it more than previously. And I think the uh, content creation ex- is extension of it. Because just by public speaking, you only reach certain audience, but by being active on social media, you reach much bigger audience. And if you really want to promote what you're doing, you need to become your own brand. That's just what I believe in. Um, I don't think there is any other way. And well, I think it's also great to be inspiration for others. Um, I'm happy if my story inspires others to do to do that and in general content creation i think it really helps to um you know to put your thoughts straight because you have to document things you do anyways and you probably kind of lax about doing that well mm. everyone is 
who likes documenting things, right? Mm. But if you write about it for a bigger audience and get impressions and likes, it kind of motivates you <laughs> to do it better. Um, yeah. So I think it has uh, its advantages because of that. You help also people. People can learn from you. Um, I really like that. So I, I really think everyone who likes um, writing should consider doing that. Hmm. That's amazing how not only the code can be open sourced, but like the vision, the ideas. And, and it's amazing to see, like, this is something I personally experienced uh, where just looking at long chain LLMs implementation on specific use cases with like different, different scale. Uh, it's fascinating just to see how fast YouTube tutorials GitHub repos, like if I think about like AutoGPT or Baby AGI mm. or like some open source things that just enhance the power of LLMs to like do crazy things. It's crazy how all of these is open source, like Lama yeah. 2 is open source. And like, I really like this idea of, um, I believe this is one of the m most powerful thing in tech right now. It's like the open source thing. Uh, mm -hmm. and like this all like sharing and like the, this idea of sharing, 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 and like it never stops. And uh, mm -hmm. it's fascinating. And, and the people who share the most and the best quality of things are the one like that gets very rewarded also. So that's fair in, in that way. I believe that there are some counter arguments uh, on that, but I, I believe that in general, um, people who shares a lot are very rewarded. Um, do, do you want to add something about that open source, um, open source and sharing? I mean, it's it's a bit what you said before, but maybe if you want to add something yeah. else. No, but I think in general, um, if you look at LinkedIn, specifically the topic that I'm, uh, we are writing about in our lobs, uh, there is not so much content about it. Yeah. And sometimes you come across content which is, to be honest, not very not very good and not very correct in some cases. Um, and it kind of upsets me, so uh, and motivates me at the same time. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, and I, I think if uh, we if we publish every day and we write every day and we get more reach, I think better content gets more reach, which is better for everyone. Hmm. Yeah. Right. Which is uh, while well, if we're speaking of LinkedIn, this is the role of LinkedIn to have good algorithms that will push the good content. Um, and like, I mean, it's a community responsibility and, and the algorithm that needs to to assess uh, the quality content and, and make it pop. Um, so that's very interesting. I would like to go a little bit in the tech side. So you've built uh, MLOps systems end-to-end -end with like many applications on, like including on platforms like Azure, AWS, but I know you've built on on... On, on something else. So can you share a little bit um, about these implementations and how mm -hmm. it evolved based on the technology you were using uh, and, and like how through time, you, you mentioned right before that um, it is not about the tool, it is about the concepts and what you're trying to mm -hmm. achieve. Um, yeah. That being said, you, you've built it uh, I mean, you have expensive knowledge on AWS and Azure and more mm -hmm. tools. Uh, so 
like what have you learned through this journey of using yeah. all these tools so i think that mlops uh, really is about the idea of traceability and reproducibility you want to for, for any model deployment model run you want to know uh, what code was responsible for it you want to know what um, model artifact was responsible for that deployment what infrastructure and what data was responsible for that so just coming from this idea you already need to have CI/CD. <laughs> you need to have version control you need to have some orchestration system you need to have some compute serving environment monitoring in place you want to do rollbacks as fast as possible um, and all of these tools you you just need to to make it possible and i think mlops um, it has to do a lot with site availability engineering i think it gets compared a lot i haven't written about that but i'm planning to in my next post <laughs> uh, so i think it, it just comes uh, to to testing different scenarios and being ready for everything and that's what most of the systems are not really built for at the moment uh, so i think it, it's on the first side should be self-serve systems that make it really easy for data scientists to interact with but on the other side it also must be reliable and easy to roll back and if you have models that have uh, high requirements um, then you need to also be able to work with those um, so it, it's really just about that uh, and you can build that with different tools it doesn't matter that much what tools you have and typically i guess if you look for large corporate organizations they already have all those tools in place because you have teams with software engineers uh, you have teams with data engineers so they have all these tools and there is no sense to just buy very specific tools just for ml mm -hmm. all those tools can be adopted um but if you are a startup um well then i would really suggest to go for cloud native tools because you don't want to you don't have teams first of all to support uh, all of that if, if you want to just have uh, airflow ml flow all of that deployed by yourself um, you will have hard time just by maintaining it all um, and you don't have people so uh, just for that reason as a startup i would totally not go for uh, all self-hosted uh, solutions i would rather go for cloud native solutions and on aws for example you have SageMaker, you have a managed airflow uh, you can go so far with this <laughs> um, grafana and you can go so far for, with this and yeah and if you, you you're in large organization and you're like a private cloud or uh, maybe you already have a big kubernetes team or something well i mean that's amazing. Why do you need something else? Hmm. Right. You've played with uh, Azure tools, AWS tools. Uh, I don't know if you've had some experience with Google uh, Cloud, um, no. Google tools, but uh, based on all the one that you've used, if uh, you mentioned like a startup is, um, they don't have any technology yet, but mm. they are working and they want to, uh, in the center of the company MLOP frameworks do you have some key tools that you've uh, kind of expressed that those are very efficient and 
they make they made you they made your life easier basically like do you have specific yeah. names i know people tends to don't like this kind of question but i'm I always know. super curious like i know the concept know. of um it's not about the tool it's what you're trying to achieve but i'm asking it anyway <laughs> yeah so i do like sage maker i really do like sage maker uh so currently we own azure and well azure ml doesn't come close to <laughs> to sage maker i'm sorry it really doesn't so um i don't know if you're on azure um yeah if you don't have anything else probably you have to use azure now um but we we happen to have databricks as well and they we have much better experience with databricks and with HTML. i'm not saying that we just should buy databricks but if you're on azure you'll probably be better off having databricks than azure ml <laughs> for example mm. um but that's just from our, our experience playing with that and that mainly comes from deploying the system uh like networking all of that um yeah It's uh, quite painful. Hmm. Yeah, Databricks is a. Uh, I mean, I, I'm I'm super impressed about what, uh, yeah. like how they've scaled the the overall platform and like how now you can do anything in Databricks and it's multi-cloud. So yeah, can, like, it's, it's pretty uh, cool. Very powerful. You can scale it yeah. uh, anytime you want. Like you can auto scale the clusters and so on. So a very. Uh, a very unique amazing tool um it's not cheap but it is it cheap. is quite good it's quite good um and i think what's also powerful they have a mailflow i mean they're creators of a mailflow in the end um yeah. but the mailflow database is better than open source mailflow it has many more features and now with unity catalog um, as well that is now general availability It's also possible to share one ML flow uh, across multiple workspaces, mm. Mm. which makes it much easier. Um, because if you don't have that, you have you, typically in a large organization for sure, you have many different databricks workspaces, each mm -hmm. for each environment typically. Yep. Um, and well, every one of them has a ML flow. And Typically, what people do is that they train uh, and store in MLflow on acceptance, and then they do the same thing all over again in production, so double costs. Um, it doesn't make much sense to me. So we have some workarounds for that, which I'm not happy about. Uh, like uh, you could um, uh, map to another uh, MLflow from another workspace if you have access tokens for that mm -hmm. other workspace. So you right. could kind of put that in the secrets and access it anyways. It's kind of ugly and I don't like it, but yeah, it can, it can be a solution. <laughs> um, but yeah, I really like that uh, with Unity Catalog at least, it makes it really easy. And also, um, for example, if you want to connect to Power BI, which is very, which is everywhere um, nowadays, right? You no know, corporate organizations for sure. Connecting to um, to Power BI from Databricks was painful, but now it also made much easier. And other connections like Synapse, I mean, it's also not so much fun defining the Synapse views. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm. I mean, I'm not. I'm not not per se fan of those toolings, but I I kind of have a, a feeling if I had AWS, I would totally go for SageMaker. 
if I was in Azure, I probably would consider something else than Azure Native Tools. On Google Cloud, I can't say because I never use Google Cloud. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. yeah, when when I hear about, uh, for example, well, first of all, this is not sponsored by Databricks. No, it's not. <laughs> of course, it is not. <laughs> they don't pay like, you. Just, uh, <laughs> like, no one is receiving uh, any money um, from Databricks here. Um, but uh, like you mentioned, like Power BI integration now is so easy. You just go like on Databricks, you have this partner connect thing, and you just select yeah. the cluster, there's a cluster, and it creates automatically the connection, which is uh, awesome. Mm-hmm. And um, AD- so AWS, well, there is Data Factory in Azure that I think oh, yeah. that we could compare to Airflow. But, uh, no, I don't think so. No, no Data it... Factory is, uh, no, I really strongly dislike it. Um, right. <laughs> well, because, so first of all, um, you have this definition, like uh, it's like a JSON or YAML specification. Uh-huh. It's pretty much impossible to actually uh, kind of understand how you modify it in the, in the way you need. So you end up going to the Azure Data Factory, clicking on things around mm-hmm. and then generate a new one. And then there is no proper syncing with repositories. I mean, it has native support for Azure DevOps, but um, I mean, uh, if you have something else, then you have a problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, because they accept personal access tokens or things like that, but it's not a proper way of automation in. Mm-hmm. at all right so to properly automate things it will be very hard for you and yeah it's just the, the whole interface not a fan uh, i kind of like airflow i think the whole pythonic way of defining things is quite mm-hmm. nice mm-hmm. but you could argue that other tools like uh, metaflow or kubeflow do it even better mm. awesome that's uh uh, noted. I would like to ask you some question on the on the tech side. We already introduced uh, a little bit, but uh, first of all, I want to come back to what you said earlier. Um, you want to grow your career, mm-hmm. both on the politics side, which are, are any points in, in careers um, around this field, like ones have to like kind of decide. And so you mentioned that you're interested in both. How do you how do you deal with that and like how do you like did, have you find some some notes like some ideas of how one can uh, combine both and stay technical uh, through their career but also being into like the management more politics side. Yeah. Yeah, it's complicated. I don't think you can ever properly combine it, to be honest. But yeah, I still kind of manage it, I guess. I guess. Uh, now, I think it's really more about where your passion is. I guess I'm not I'm not sure whether I'm entirely correct in this, but I have a feeling that if people decide just to go for leadership and stop coding, they just don't like coding enough. That's what I think. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. I just like it too much. Mm. And that's why I struggle, I guess, <laughs> currently. Do you have, do you believe that some people in leadership that don't have enough understanding of code can be a problem for the team yeah. they're managing? Like, do, do yeah, you, definitely. Do you, could you elaborate on that? 
So uh, I think there are multiple types of leadership. I've seen people go into, into architect positions and the people going into more like product management position or people management. It's like basically three types yeah. hmm. developments that we see. And all of them don't really code much or hmm. not at all. Uh, so for architect, it is very dangerous. Uh, right. I think especially dangerous <laughs> because they make architectural decisions on things. And if they don't code, well, and the, the field is developing so fast, you're never going to be able to make good decisions on things you haven't tried yourself. Right. So, yeah, I think the architect position is very, com very controversial uh, from what I've seen. There are some good architects I've seen that code, actually, but the ones that don't code tend to be not that good. <laughs> yeah. It's like, this is... All right, so... From my perspective, nowadays, um, all the companies are becoming like technical companies at some, at some level, yeah. at some extent. And it's like, and like we're competing. And so like the race of AI, like this famous sentence, like the race of AI, AI is going to whatever. Um, so I would, I'm seeing that in terms of now we're competing with better technical company, not in technical fields necessarily. And mm -hmm. if someone is going to take decisions, the best decisions, it needs to be someone that at least understands state of the art. Maybe not have played with tools, but know what's mm -hmm. going on and like have a clear big picture of what's going on. Maybe reading some papers, maybe like playing around, like getting some time out to play around with new things just to to have this vision because I can't accommodate, I can't understand and I can't see how can someone do this without like reading any paper, understanding the state of the art and like yeah. be successful. Or <laughs> at least it's a, it's a very, it's very yeah. impressive. Um, but I don't know, like maybe this is just me and uh, I'm not saying that anyone needs to be technical, but I believe that for those roles, taking mm, leadership I and, I, and I would also add that from my perspective, if I'm in a leadership position, uh, mm. like uh, as an architect or something or something like similar, I would need to get some time to just play with the new things. Right now, I'll say yeah. LLMs and so on. Mm -hmm. um, but that's just my opinion. What do you think? Well, I've seen managers taking bad technical decisions because they're not technical enough. So um, I, I think, well, that's just my personal opinion that you, you need to stay technical in, in a sort of way. But that's just a tendency that you see that people stop doing that. Maybe not everyone, maybe some still code, uh, but the ones that I've seen. And uh, for some reason, non-technical companies actually uh, prefer uh, managers that have management experience, but not technical experience, because they uh, think they can manage better, but I don't agree with this. Um, mm. I think technical uh, experience counts better because you also need to, you know, stand for your team <laughs> in the end. And uh, often it goes into talking to other technical teams. 
well, I think these roles are also so mixed in different organizations. So, right, right, yeah, I believe that it also add noise, like uh, add yeah. bias, because if you have a specific problem, and the person who knows the problem, even though we can describe the problem with non technical terms, but like mm -hmm. having a clear picture on what's going on, if that kind of details, not technical details, but like the details that are important based on the problem are lost because mm -hmm. the person that is going to uh, communicate this detail to stakeholders or the executives' uh, roles uh, are losing some mm -hmm. details, then it loses yeah. of the importance of the problem. And then that create miscommunication and well, it uh, does uh, have an impact. Um, mm -hmm. I also don't really like the, the, the separation between business and technical. Uh, I don't really yeah. like this uh, segment on like putting tags on people because I believe that mm -hmm. someone can understand technically things, but can be great at solving some specific business problem or, or having a business perspective on things. Uh, so that's also one thing that uh, I can see sometimes and that uh, to me doesn't benefit uh, the overall goal of what we're mm -hmm. trying to achieve. Uh, as a company in general, um, do you want to react on that? Um, no, I think I think I agree. This kind of uh, this kind of labels is probably not the best uh, thing you can do. But yeah, I mean, you have to have some kind of structure, mm -hmm. and I guess that is coming from need uh, for the structure. But mm -hmm. in the end, it's all about people. I think it needs to be the person that can uh, can see the full picture. And well, sometimes I also had a manager who wasn't exactly technical, but he was very good. So, hmm. yeah. Awesome. Uh, I have three more questions. Uh, uh, we're kind of at the end of the episode. The first one is, uh, do you have tips for anyone who is at the beginning of um, their journey on MLOps, but also uh, some other people out there that are more advanced in MLOps? Like, do you have tips to push their careers forward um, well i think for um, for for the ones who are starting with uh, with their career it's quite tough time i would say because the, there are so many juniors on the market but so little seniors uh, on the market and it makes it very competitive for them mm. um yeah it, it it's just how the market is at the moment um mm. And I think uh, if you really want to go into MLOps, it might be also not not that bad idea just to go into software development for some time or doing data science because you need both anyways. Mm -hmm. um, and in all organizations, it kind of emerges because if you're just a software developer, you will have to do something with AI anyways because someone is deploying something with AI. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think it's all also interconnected so you, you don't really need to look for specific titles um well any title around it probably would be okay and you will understand also better what you like what you don't like because it's very hard to judge from outside mm -hmm. um, but then the ones who are more advanced but want to get into mlops i guess if you're a data scientist software engineer well i guess you need to team up with other people that have the skills that you don't and learn from them um, so for example if you're a software engineer willing to do more MLOps 
them team up with data scientists. They would really appreciate your help because they lack your knowledge and the other way around. So um, yeah, really teaming up with people, coming up with a project that you can work together on, that would be the best you could learn. That's actually how I learned as well. We had awesome software engineers in a, uh, the telecom company, KPN I worked for, and that's how I learned to deploy APIs and all of that. So yeah, really team up with other people that will help you. Right, that's awesome. And I like the fact that you mentioned that like trying to combine specific roles, like maybe data science mm-hmm. with some software engineer skills or data science, data engineer, data engineer, software engineer, um, and so on. Um, my second question is, where can people know more about uh, all the work that you guys are doing and that you do also with your personal account? Uh, like mm-hmm. where should people look at? Yeah, so we have uh, on our personal accounts, indeed, we share things daily. Uh, we have our LinkedIn of Marvelous ML Ops where we post uh, things three times per week or sometimes more. And we have Substack where we uh, publish our articles. It's also a medium, but well, Substack is kind of a bit more active for us at the moment. So uh, wherever, whatever you prefer, we also just launch our YouTube channel. <laughs> Uh, we had this Ask Me Anything session that we put on YouTube and I will continue doing so for the next sessions as well. So if you have any questions, it really doesn't matter how junior or senior you are, um, any question, technical, career, uh, you are welcome to come up in those sessions and ask us a question and we'll answer them for you. Amazing. Uh, last question. And I want to thank you again for coming on the show. I had an amazing time, learned a lot. Uh, Maria, would you have a message for the Lister K community? It can be a personal message, it can be professional, career related or not, you decide. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I think everyone in this field is struggling with imposter syndrome, that it's, uh, there is so much to learn, but the thing is no one really knows everything. So just, you're okay. Yeah, you cannot learn all of it. Um, and uh, yeah, I just accept how things are and um, your knowledge is valuable anyways. Awesome. Thanks a lot. And I wish you to have a wonderful day. Yes, you too. Bye-bye. Congrats, you've made it to the end. I hope you had a great time and that you learned a few things. To learn more about AI, you can subscribe to my newsletter or check the blog. And to support the podcast, you can give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also share it with two friends, colleagues or family members that might be interested. I wish you to have a wonderful day. Bye.